Hello, everyone. Welcome to Repot It, the rerouted podcast. I'm your host, Brian Schoening. I'm here with my co-host and CEO, Chap Grub. Chap, how's it going today, man? Oh, it's great. Another beautiful day down here in New Mexico. We are trying to wade our way into winter sports on the rerouted podcast, and we've been doing some focus uh, on ski resorts and ski areas on our social media and our Instagram and Facebook page recently. Chap, why don't you why don't you introduce our guests here today, and yeah. uh, we'll we'll get into some into some ski and winter sports related uh, related conversations. Yeah, we're super excited. Both of our guests are very close to our heart today, and we really are excited to be breaking into the winter conversation. It hasn't felt like winter here, but. We're so lucky to be joined by Mark Schoening today. Mark is an expert outdoorsman. He's spent many, many, many decades out in the outdoors exploring and boy. Does oh, okay. He have- I mean, chill out, chap. You could do one less many decades. You don't have to, you don't have to put them on blast like that, right? Hey, I, we value experience here at Rerouted. Uh, Mark, why don't you say hi real quick and then I'll introduce Chris. Uh, howdy, everybody. Thanks for being here, Mark. So Chris Wilsey, we got here. He's our VP of finance, business dev. He's pro. He's also affiliated with the Shonin family and has some great stories. Chris, you want to say hi? Yeah, I like to just tell everybody that I'm just a guy. <laughs> no, it's been awesome being here at Rerouted with uh, Chap and Brian and uh, super excited to hear a bit more from Mark. I have some experience in the outdoors, not quite as much as Mark Shoning here, but I've got some good stories to tell about the uh, mountain we'll be featuring later on in this podcast. Well, so Mark, I guess give, give a little bit more background because they all know us. Give maybe the the. 30-second summary of kind of your background, and then we'll kind of start talking about these stories. Uh, Well, um, like a lot of us, I grew up in an outdoor family, and uh, we started skiing and backpacking and climbing and hunting and fishing at a very young age, and uh, I guess it just has become, you know, it just kind of became part of our lifestyle, and, and, uh, Gratefully, uh, it continues to this day. I think the mountains are a great place to go and not just uh, enjoy yourself, uh, but uh, it's a good place to uh, learn a little bit about your character and and to uh, uh, to learn lessons that you can apply to other things. And, and as long as I keep learning those lessons, I'll, I'll keep heading out into the mountains. That That's something that we actually talk about a lot on the podcast is the learning experiences in the outdoors. And kind of all of the all of the personal growth that happens uh, when you're when you're in the outdoors. So I guess Brian, Mark, Brian, you are Mark's son. You guys yep. have a. We'll just peel peel that bandaid off right now. Mark is yeah, my dad. We just got We just got to get it going. I mean, yeah. there's the elephant in the room. We got to break the ice. So, Brian, I know that we have a a fantastic father son story that we're going to tell about. Big white, big white. Yeah. So big white in uh, Kelowna, BC was a, was a common vacation spot for our family growing up. We would go a couple of times a year. I would estimate that we got at least 10 ski days every year at big white or pretty, pretty close to it, which, you know, when you don't live, it's about eight hours, 10 hours away from our house, depending on, you know, how many, how many bathroom breaks we had to, we had to take on the, on the way up. But uh, it, it's a it's a decent it's a decent haul. It's a decent drive. So it's it's not somewhere that we would just go, you know, for an after in an afternoon. We just decide that we want to go night skiing or something. But it was 
you know, a planned trip. And I would say we got generally around 10, maybe sometimes 12 ski days per year at, uh, at Big White. And it was, it was a favorite spot for, for our entire family. Would you, would you agree, Mark? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we first went when we were kids, uh, back then it was just the local ski hill there out of Kelowna. I think they had two or three chairlifts and a, a Pama and a T-bar and a couple of rope toes, but we, we loved it. And the snow was great. That's why we went up there. And uh, by the time you guys were, came around, uh, my, uh, my, my mom, Brian's grandmother and my sister had bought a little place that was right on uh, one of the cat tracks. So you could ski in and ski out. And that's one of the popular things about big white and some of the other uh, Canadian uh ski areas is they a lot of them have ski in ski out accommodation so you park your car in the garage and then you don't worry about it for for the week and uh the other thing that was attractive to us of course we got a good deal in the on the accommodations but back when these guys were younger the exchange rate was phenomenal and uh i know when they were younger we could buy a family season pass you know pass for the whole family for the season for under seven hundred dollars u.s so there were years we always made two trips every year of between, you know, four and eight days. And there were years we went up there four times. I mean, there were years we got 15, 18 days of skiing. So, so that was, that was kind of what attracted us to it. And of course the, the ski area has grown over the years. There's, they've, they've got a lot of new terrain and, and they're always looking to expand and they've always had a, a, a great customer service up, up there too. I'm really, uh, I'm really glad that you mentioned the ski in ski out aspect of it. Maybe we can get Chris to jump in here as well. Chap, I don't know if you have a bunch, a lot of experience with, with ski in ski out condos, but, but the whole idea of we would park our car and then we would not get in the car again, the, until we were about to leave and to be able to just put your, put your gear on, walk out of the condo and immediately be, be on the trail. It's, it's something that, I never realized how much of a luxury it was because I spent, you know, a, a lot of my time growing up skiing at Big White. You know, it's where I learned how to ski. Uh, and that was just kind of something that that was just a part of skiing for me. It wasn't necessarily something that I thought of as a luxury. And then I would go, you know, to a friend's cabin up near, you know, a, a place in Washington, Stevens Pass or Crystal. And it's like, well, yeah, it's it's up by the mountain, but you still got to jump in the car. You still got to drive 20 minutes. You still got to park. You still got to, you know, there were all of these kind of obstacles between when you woke up and put your ski gear on and then actually skiing. And with the ski in, ski out condos, it was such a luxury to just put your stuff on, head outside, you're on the hill. You guys, talk- couldn't, you guys couldn't see me I was laughing when you guys were talking about the ski and ski out condos. Cause yes, I've, I've definitely experienced it. Fantastic, special experience, but I was laughing because I spent most of my time skiing in college, driving up and down the I-70 corridor up into Keystone Brack Vale. And I cannot tell you how many times my buddies and I spent nine plus hours st- stuck in the I-70 corridor, like in the car, just us, no food, no water, no anything, listening to music, stuck, calling in our teachers because we are going to miss Monday because we didn't get back till four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Chris, yeah. talk to me a little bit and about I, your I would, experience with, uh, with ski and ski out. Cause I, I know that you, you were at, you were at big white with us and, and we all stayed in, uh, in the moguls. It was a, it was a, a, a condo complex called, called the moguls. And it was, 
it was definitely a favorite, but maybe is that your only experience with ski in ski out? Yeah, for the most part, the closest that we came, uh, on the East coast to ski in ski out was at J peak. And that was a place that we rented, um, for a weekend over winter when we weren't at big white, um, one of the off weekends there, um, that we were in a cabin similar to you, but we were kind of offshoot on the hill so we only had to walk out a little ways to the run but you know it was still maybe like a five or six minute trek thankfully didn't have to drive anywhere um but the big white ski and ski out i mean you could literally make a nascar pit stop if you needed to just like run in to use the restroom or if you forgot something we had the old walkie-talkie system because you didn't get great cell service up there so you could walkie-talkie radio into the room and if you like forgot something or needed a snack and um in the later years when we started renting that second unit that was on the back side of the building where the ski and ski out was they could just toss whatever you needed right off the balcony there so you could literally just cruise into the underside of the building boom grab your snack from underneath start eating and just continue out to the run so definitely similarly to you was something that i for sure took for granted when i started skiing in college because it was you better have everything you need because you're parking 35 minutes from the mountain. And if you forget anything, your cell phone, your gloves, like you might as well just leave it there for the rest of the day. Cause you're going to have to like uncork everything, get yourself set up to go walk like, you know, three miles through a parking lot full of cars and other people coming in. So go ahead, Mark. I, I, inter- I interrupted you there. No, to get Chris's no, no. What I was, was going to say is as a parent, one of the beauties of, of, of big white and the ski and ski out is, is that, you know, you're, you're, we, all of our kids and, and Chris, who's my, my sister's son, uh, uh, we all, uh, uh, the kids all started skiing fairly young, you know, two, three, four years old. Uh, well, by the time they're seven or eight, they, they all knew the ski area very, very, very well. And uh, they knew the lifts that they were comfortable on and this kind of thing. And, um, they go on their own, you know, you, you, you seven, eight year old kid, grab a cousin who's maybe 10 or 11 and, uh, Hey, we're going to go out and be gone for a couple hours. And, uh, uh, as parents, we were quite comfortable with that. Uh, we, we knew where to go look for them. And, uh, uh, they always, not always, <laughs> most of the time they seem to find their way back. We had a couple of, we had a couple of search parties late, <laughs> late after the lights came on, but for the most part, they always found their way back. And you see, that's kind of a nice sort of a gentle way to, to, for a, a kid to learn, you know, independence and resourcefulness in the, in the mountains, in the, in the safety of a, of a ski area where there's lots of, uh, uh, you know, lifties that get to know them by name and, and uh, ski, ski patrol people that are, are out and about and others that, uh, that are they're out and about so uh, uh, I think it was a great area for the kids to kind of learn independence and be able to go out on their own and 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 enjoy themselves in the mountains in kind of a safe way whereas you wouldn't let your kid go out and you know climb some glaciated peak at 10 or 11 years old without a little help if that yeah. makes any sense that's a great point, Mark. And it's funny that story of you know most of the time they make it back it reminds me I definitely want to hear our Brian Cliff related story. But I do, I taught snowboard and ski instructing for a really long time. And on the mountain, we also used walkie-talkies because a lot of those places don't have service. But over the walkie-talkie network, you would never say, hey, we lost a kid because that would put everybody into panic. So the code was the pizza's out of the box. 
That's what we, that was our code is that the pizza's out of the box. And that means that somebody lost a kid and we need to enact the staff to go find the kid. But so, so Mark, it sounds like uh, there was a situation where, where Brian might've been the pizza out of the box. If you could give a little bit more background and I'd love to hear from both of you on that front. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll kind of give a, a little bit of background. There was, there was this, uh, there was, there's this run on, on big white called the cliff. You take the Alpine T bar to the highest point on, on the mountain and very aptly named the cliff. It was the, it was a double black diamond. It was the steepest, the steepest run, uh, on, on the mountain. And, and it was, you know, look, there was a there was there were ways to ski down it. It's it's a it's just a really tough and steep run. And and Dad, maybe you can expand on on kind of what the cliff was. What what I knew about the cliff is there were a couple. I'm I'm laughing. There were a couple of uh, requirements. All of us learned how to ski before we learned how to snowboard. And in order to be allowed to snowboard in our family, you had to a ski the cliff. And you had to be 10 years old. And those were the two, the two requirements. You had to ski until you were 10 years old. And you also had to prove that you could ski the cliff before, before you were allowed to snowboard. Well, I was, I was really, really interested in snowboarding when I was eight, nine years old. And I had kind of gotten my parents to, to budge on the 10 years old requirement. But skiing the cliff was 100%. If I was going to start snowboarding, then skiing the cliff was a, was a requirement. And that's, that's what got me at, you know, I forget if I was eight or nine, but that's what got me at eight or nine up on top of the T-bar with my dad here. And uh, I think you were younger than that, actually, because I think all three of you guys skied the cliff when you were six or seven. And I don't know who came up with that arbitrary rule, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it was basically trying to develop a, 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 a proficiency at, at skiing and, and, Brian was going to snowboard no matter <laughs> what we did. So we did break the rules for him. Yeah. I think you were younger than that. And uh, there was the, the cliff, which is a double diamond run. It's a fantastic run uh, that comes off of that T-bar there. Really fun, fun place to ski big, big basin with a big lake at the bottom of it. And uh, really a fun place to, to ski up there. It's it gorgeous. Took, looking, it's really down, looking down the yeah. cliff from the top of the T-bar, it is one of the most spectacular things that you can see because he's, he said there's a lake at the bottom. Well, that lake is probably covered in like 30 inches of snow because yeah. you can't, you can't, you're not allowed to ski on it. So it's yeah. just like this kind of this beautiful basin with just a ton of this kind of pure white powder down at the bottom there. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Anyway, continue. It, well, it took on kind of mythical proportions with our kids, and uh, uh, and there was uh, Dan, uh, both Chris and Brian had several cousins that were older than them that were skiing, and there's a little kind of friendly competition. And have you skied the cliff yet? And this guy, so there's a lot of motivation besides the snowboarding to uh, to ski the cliff. And I always would kind of pick kind of a little try and pick a little bit nicer day. It could get kind of icy up there. And, uh, and if it had a, too much new snow, then of course it's all, all, you kind of look for kind of a packed powder sort of a day so kid can make a turn. And, uh, Brian and I get up there and it was maybe a little harder than, than, than it should have been. And, uh, you know, the first thing you look over the edge and it's like, oh my goodness. And of course you're, uh, you're saying, oh no, you'll be fine. You're going to be fine. This will be, uh, just start off slow. And, and, and you guys probably remember those 
those steep hills when you're a kid, you, you kind of start them and, and the first turn's always the toughest. And, uh, but after you get about three or four turns in, you're, you're, you're fine. You're just cranking away. And I knew that uh, once he got through the first uh, two or three turns, he'd be fine. So we start this very slow, you know, sort of wobbly knee wedge traverse <laughs> with this six, seven year old Brian. And, uh, and of course I got this enormous wedge because I'm, I'm trying to hold an edge there on the hillside. And I stayed right below him because if, if the kid goes, you know, you just reach down and scoop them up by the back of the ski suit. They, they had these one piece ski suits when they were young and you just grab them, and pick them up and say, well, let's try that again. And uh, uh, so we start this traverse and I'm kind of encouraging him and you'll be fine and all that kind of garbage. And, and uh, why don't you try and make a turn here? And Brian gets ready for the turn and away he goes. And I, I reach for him and I missed him. And uh, I, there was really nothing for me to do, but kind of sit there and watch. And it was quite a show. I got to say, uh, he, you know, he started off sliding and then he's kind of bouncing and tumbling. Just for and reference, he said, he said quite a show. Oh, it was quite a show. Yeah. Three separate people called ski patrol. As soon as I <laughs> yeah. fell, there was somebody down at the bottom that saw what happened and called and called ski yeah. patrol. There was somebody that was coming up on the T-bar that called Ski Patrol. And there was somebody already at the top of the T-bar that had called Ski Patrol. And so Ski Patrol, by the time they get the third call, they're like, yep, kid fell down the cliff. We got it. We're on it. There's there's a lot of people that kind of line along the the edge there and watch people go down. And and they're probably all thinking, who's this uh, bozo with his little kid here? He shouldn't be out there. But uh, I thought I knew what I was doing. Well, the next thing you know, he's cartwheeling and uh, stuff's coming off, you know, skis and gloves and it's a regular yard sale. And um, uh, there were some trees below us, but I wouldn't, he looked like he's going to miss those, but there was also about a 20 foot drop over some rocks below us. And uh, as I watched him, I I was kind of hoping he'd miss those, but he was heading for them and, uh, and he, over he goes and he disappears and uh, I go, oh, this is not going to be good. And, and you have a lot of things go through your mind, like, you know, what am I going to tell his mother? And, uh, uh, you know, there's part of you saying, oh, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. And then the other part of you is like, <laughs> you know, what have I done? And uh, I saw him slide out from underneath the rocks because he went out of sight there for a minute. And he's laying there. And I like, Brian, just move. You do something. Move or something. So I know you're, you're, you're at least a, a conscious and sure enough, he started to move his head and uh, he didn't make a sound. Uh, you know, I expected screaming and this kind of thing, but he he uh, uh, he just took it uh, like Brian kind of takes things, I guess. And uh, I ski down as fast as I can. And like Brian said, I, I don't think I'd been there more than a couple of minutes when the ski patrol showed up because they, they'd already heard about it. And normally when the kids fall, you'll say something like, Hey, that was awesome. And you pick them up and start cleaning them off. And boy, that was a great fall. But I knew that in this particular case, uh, that was probably not going to fly. So I was a little more sympathetic and are you okay? I will say that when I I picked him up, he had snow in just about every possible, I mean, his, this is what I, this is what I remember very, very clearly. His eyes are crammed snow. His goggles are long gone and broken. He's got snow down his suit. He's got it crammed up his leg and in his hands and 
he had snow pretty much in every opening he you could possibly think of. Uh, uh, so we spent some time cleaning out the snow. I don't remember any crying or anything, Brian. Uh, well, uh, you, so you seemed, I, remember, I think you were a little bit in a daze, to be honest. Uh, but I did the math on where he landed, and it was a 600 vertical foot slide down this double diamond uh, that this six or seven year old kid made. And uh, uh, go ahead, Brian, you're going to say something. Well, so I need, I, wait, hold on, hold on. I need Brian's perspective. I got to say two things. First of all, I had my microphone on mute the whole time because I could not stop laughing. That was absurd. Mark's perspective on the whole thing is just amazing. Uh, and I cannot wait to hear what Brian has to say. So you think there's a 600 foot vertical difference from where Brian started to where he ended roughly, Mark? Yeah, 600 vertical is what I figured, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, so amazing. I got to see a picture of this run at some point. But Brian, <laughs> yeah. Brian, let's well, we, we'll go up to take you up there sometime and we can ski it. And I'll show you right where he went. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. So, Brian, let's hear a little bit about your perspective. And then I also am hoping Chris has a after image third party outside perspective after this is done. Well, so it was just my dad and I. This was kind okay. of a, a father's a father son. We went up to, to was he at the home? cliff. He was he was later. back. He was back at the at the, he was either out skiing or he was back at the uh, at the lodge or not the lodge at our uh, at our condo. And and it it became a story that week. That this this whole thing be, became a story that week. I would like to start this off by saying I think that I hold the record for fastest run down the cliff. Uh, for a six or seven year old, we can't call it skiing per se because I it was more of a more of a tumble than actually skiing. Um, what I remember, it, you know, this all took place over the course of forty five seconds, a minute and a half. I, you know, I don't know how long it was, but it was under two or three minutes from when you know I I fell to to when I was ultimately at the bottom. I remember after that that big drop and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, dad, but there were a couple of pretty spiky rocks that I landed in between. I landed yes. between a couple of rocks yeah. that would have caused some, some real trouble. Those, yeah. those ones would have caused some real trouble. But what I remember is, is I see my dad coming down and he's, you know, collected as much of my gear on the way down as possible. So he's got, you know, a ski here, a pole here, a glove here. And, and I remember he got down and, and he usually, like he said, it's, oh, that was awesome. You know, what a, you know, trying to be, he was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Are you okay? The first thing that I said was, I am so cold. <laughs> I said, I am so cold. And then we got the, that was awesome. Just kind of the normal reaction. Once, once he knew that I was, you know, <laughs> alive and, and I was in, in good enough spirits, I, I, you know, my legs weren't broken. I was, I was, I was all, I was all in one piece or at least, you know, the gear was, the, the skis popped out and, and I was all, I was all good, but you know, it's, it's hard for me to have much of a perspective other than, you know, just the top and the bottom. But I remember at the, at the bottom, my first reaction was, I am, I don't know if I've ever been this cold in my entire life. That's, that's awesome. What a great kind of thought to have. And, and I love that that, you know, showed that light spirit or being lighthearted showed that you were okay. And that's a good way to communicate that even as a really young kid, Brian, I know it, especially being so young, you had to be thinking something 
when you were going down? Did you have anything on your radar while you were tumbling down this cliffside? I, I would say that I was not aware of the danger that I was in. I, you know, I was tumbling and I was tumbling. I was not aware that I was in any, in any type of real danger until, until looking at the run again from the top, which, which we'll get, we'll get to, you know, I, I didn't, didn't go right back out that day, but this was pretty early in the week. And, um, and I think that my, my goal at one point, we had kind of, we had kind of decided and discussed that, you know, the only way, the only way to do it is to, is to get back on the horse. Right. So. Yeah. You know, I, I gotta, I gotta give you credit, Brian, because uh, that's kind of a rule in our family, you know, that when you get knocked down, you, you jump back on the horse or whatever. And, and uh, I didn't push too hard on this because I knew that that was, you know, it might be a while before he could stomach it, but I give you credit. You, you, uh, Brian determined, I don't know if it was that day, but it was soon thereafter. He, it was, he, it was a couple he of days. He determined later. that we, he was going to take a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. We, we yeah. took a couple of days, but it was before yeah. we left big white. It was, it was in the same yep. trip. I, I, I went back and, and skied, skied the thing and, and got, got more than one or two turns in and, and kind yeah. of, and, you know, actually, actually skied it. But I remember that I was not, I was not wholly aware of the danger that I was in until I was, until I was seeing it from the top again. Um, and, and that was, that was really interesting. Um, so dad, how did, how did this story, how did this story go when, when we got home, you know, when we got back to the, when we got back to the, you, you well, said that the first thing that went through your, through your mind is, yeah. you know, what am I going to tell this kid's mother? And, I, and so how did that conversation end up? I, I, as you know, I, I tend to kind of down your mother so that we can continue to go out and, and have our adventures. And I've always, I've always, I want to make sure we have two or three kids. Cause if we lose uh, one along the way, we'll have a couple of spares. That's always been kind of our, that was kind of my rule knowing that these kids would be asked to go out in the mountains and, and try different things. Uh, I know that doesn't sound Probably not PC, but I, I've, oh played, I've, I've played, played it tester. down. I've played tester in a lot of cases. There were a lot of uh, sledding uh, excursions that we went on where I was sent down on a sled, and then some. for some reason, nobody else decided that they were going to go sledding after me. Uh, True. My gosh. So, so this is the most I've laughed in a very long time. That's what a fantastic response you got to have. You got to have spares. And you know what? I think that that's true because you gotta, you gotta go do stuff. So that reminds me, Brian, my, my dad and his, his brothers used to send their youngest sister to be the one to test everything. So yeah. makes sense. Um, so Mark, that was, that was Brian in our family. He, he always went for, he was the youngest. So you know, we figured if it was okay for him, then the rest of us could try it. Well, they all bounce, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Young, yeah. young kids bounce really well. Um, so Mark, I guess I want to hear what happened when you told Emmy and I want to hear, cause Chris, were you, Chris, were you there when this story got broached with the family? So I was on that trip, yeah. but I was, you know, if Brian was six or seven, I was eight or nine. Um, and I was definitely just off in my own little world. Cause I don't remember hearing about this directly until much, much later getting this story firsthand from Brian. Oh. 
probably around one of the first times I was about to go ski the cliff. Um, And so in the exact moment of it happening, I don't recall much, you know, I was probably just hanging out and drinking hot cocoa and eating ramen and, you know, maybe, maybe saw Brian on the way and it was like, Hey, you you got a lot of snow on you. What's going on with that? Um, But I heard about it later from Brian directly. And, and, and chap, when these stories, like I say, we, we downplayed these things. So virtually every night in the condo, there were stories. And, oh, yeah, I did this, and I went over here, and we went through here. And, and so I think that in, in, you've got a bunch of kids running around, and they're all telling stories, and the parents are there. And it's, uh, I, think, I think it might have got lost in the shuffle, but, uh, but I won't forget it. <laughs> nice. That, I think that's a boon. And I, you know, like I said, like I said, I love the sentiment that, you know, you gotta, you gotta show kids how to take the right kind of risk and how to do things in the right kind of way. And obviously this wasn't a great situation and there was absolutely risk involved, but what's amazing is that Brian had the confidence and experience and the mentorship that he was able to feel good about in the next couple of days, going and trying something similar again. And I think that that's a really cool kind of full circle event. I mean, I know my mom looked at me when I was 16 years old and she said, chap, I know one day you're going to want to go skydiving. Make sure you don't tell me until after you do it. Like go skydive. Call me when you're back on the ground. Yeah. Well, so that was, that was something that I, I remember we had the conversation on the way back to, to the, uh, we had the conversation on the way back to the condo that, you know, Hey, that was, that was a, a hell of an experience and we will, you know, we will do it again and it doesn't have to be right now, but pretty, pretty immediately. I, I knew that, that I was going to be skiing the cliff again sometime very, very soon. I didn't necessarily know that it was, that it was going to be, you know, later that week. Um, but right away, I, I knew that that was, that was still uh, in play for me. That I, I had, I had not necessarily, you know, I, I look, I think that if I had wanted to snowboard the next year and not ski the cliff again, I think that I probably would have been, would have been allowed to, I think, I think ultimately I had, I had done what I needed to do in order to, to, you know, check that box. But I remember there was, I remember there was a conversation between my mom and my dad where, where my dad was telling my mom that, that we were going to go do it again. And she was like, over my dead body, you're going to go do that again. Because, you know, I, I had had this experience and I remember kind of being brought into, into the room where, where my dad was like, no, he wants to go do it again. And I, and I did, I, I wanted to go and do it again and actually kind of get that full experience. But it was, there was a, there was definitely a little bit, um, it took a little bit of convincing, I think, to, uh, to, to get back out there. Absolutely. And, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's a really good way to kind of uh, uh, approach everything. So Brian, I think that that's a really good kind of full circle wrap up to that. And I guess, Chris, why don't you just chip in a little bit about that family experience kind of from an outsider's perspective, going to big white and maybe a quick story you had. And then Mark, I know we have one more, one more kind of big question for you at the end. Yeah, so I can touch on on the cliff in a slightly different light real quick, and then I have a, a fun ski in, ski out experience um, that I can tie in at the end there. But um, 
we used to do lots of ski lessons up there. Like this is where we learned to ski. Um, and as we got older, um, we, and I don't remember who the first person to have a lesson was, but he was this like tall, kind of looked a bit like Thor, long blonde hair. And his name was Booster. And it was like, when you got a lesson with Booster, you knew you were in for an absolute treat. Cause he was just like the coolest guy on the mountain. And he knew all the awesome places to ski and he could take you in the park. He could go back country with you, just an all around awesome, awesome high level skier. And um, one morning we got very lucky that we, got to do a lesson with booster this week. He just happened to be available. And so our parents had booked him up for us. I remember going out with Dave and Brian's older brother, Dan, um, Dan hopped in because booster was the ski instructor. He wasn't planning on doing any runs with us, but once he heard it was booster, he knew we were going to do something fun. So booster took us up to the cliff first run of the day, like cold Turkey out the gate. We've skied out. We've gone up. We're going straight to the cliff. And my brother and I are kind of like, okay, this is interesting. Normally we take a couple runs and get warmed up and boosters like, no, we're just hitting this thing. And he had been checking snow reports and he also was on the ski squad that would do like the avalanche patrolling along the basin. And so he knew that like the snow quality on this day was going to be, was expected to be insane because he had been out like the night before doing patrolling just in case because they knew that this big snowfall was going to go so you know bright and early in the morning we're going up the t-bar we're at the top of the cliff and you know it's just beautiful sun shining and we're about to hit this run and we are making first tracks on the cliff but we're first people up there booster just like you know kicked us out of bed got us rolling and it was i think to this day probably the nicest snow i have ever been in and when we got to the bottom of the run, Dan, Dave, and I are looking at each other and all of us have snow, like on top of our goggles, Dan had snow in the top of his helmet. Booster comes out looking like he ran through a wall of snow and we're all looking at each other. Like none of us fell up there. What's going on? The powder when we were, you know, crouching into our turns was literally up over our heads. And we were just floating through snow the whole way down. Um, so the reason that people enjoy skiing the cliff is because you do get days like that where you've got literally powder up over your eyeballs and you're just floating through awesome white fluffy stuff, just cruising down. Um, so that's kind of a, a different light on the, uh, the cliff experience there. The other fun thing I remember being up at big white and it's, it's something that I always have fond memories of is, is the night skiing. And, you know, they have a couple of runs that are lit up and, and they go like, you know, near the top of the mountain, not to the tip top, but like they go up. It's not just the runs at the, at the bottom level. You actually can go in there and you can, you can cruise runs for a few hours at night and it's always a blast. But the ski and ski out experience, the only downside that I could think of was having to get back to your ski in during the night skiing, because just the way that it was situated was the runs that were lit up were kind of across the mountainside from where our, our unit was at the moguls. And so you would have to kind of trek across a couple of unlit runs to get to the cat track that went into the moguls. And now you do this a couple of times growing up and you, you sort of get a feel for where you need to go. But like every once in a while you get an evening where 
it's just not very bright out. Maybe you got some cloud coverage as you were skiing on all the lit stuff and you don't really realize how dark it has gotten or and how little light you have available to you until you're off trail. And I remember there was a couple evenings where, you know, we'd be out skiing with a group of people and we would get over there. And you, if you missed that cat track, you were just up in the woods, skiing in darkness, trying to avoid trees, making your way. You just knew that you had to go down the mountain and eventually you would hit the cat track. And always at the top of the cat track was like a pretty solid, maybe eight to 10 foot drop getting out of the trees into the cat track. And you just knew that at some point in time, you were going to hit that blind and just, you know, get your knees ready to go. Cause you knew it was coming up and it would usually just fall out from underneath you. You'd hit the track cat track and then you knew you were gone. So always a fun experience, big white, just an absolute blast. Highly recommend getting up there. If you're anywhere near, you know, a 10 hour zone of uh, Kelowna, BC, cause you're going to love it for sure. That, that's an awesome point about, um, you know, the, the cat track, not, not being lit up. I, I remember I've, I had had, and, and you and I together, maybe at point at points probably had been out night skiing and just trying to cut over and maybe you cut over a little bit too early and then you're skiing like three quarters of a run in, in the pitch black and you can barely see anything and, and you kind of don't really know what's going on, but eventually, eventually you kind of always, always were able to, able to hit that cat track now dad i want to i want to kind of wrap up here with our with our final uh kind of standard question that we that we ask a lot of our guests what's uh what's a piece of a piece of outdoor gear that has been been meaningful to you maybe something that has a, a little bit of sentimental value um for you that's a, a great question <laughs> and there's a lot of like like you guys at rerouted i tend to keep my stuff going as long as I can. <laughs> and I got, there's a few items I probably have had way too long. When I was in high school, uh, I had cousins that were racers and uh, they had access to uh, pro deals. And I got a pair of Scott World Cup ski poles, which were the, just the coolest poles you could buy. I got them through a, um, you know, a rep had half price. They had the leather straps, right? And uh, rather than the, you know, the the nylon ones, or I don't even know what they use now. Anyway, uh, I I've had those poles. Gosh, I think I've had them forty years. And um, I would say fifteen or twenty years ago, I broke one of them, and was hugely disappointed. Uh, but I was able to find one. Uh, I, again, I, I, I went and hit up all the reps and found one uh, uh, that I could cut to size. And I still use those poles today. Although <laughs> uh, last spring, I broke another one. So now I'm really, I, I might have to break down and buy new, new ski poles, but I have in essence used the same uh, ski poles that whole time. I just love them. And I get comments about them in the ski line, you know, oh, I remember those or, and those are leather straps. And so I would say those are, of my ski gear, those are my prized possession. Mark. uh, Those World Cup ski poles. I was going to say that's so special. That was a fantastic answer. And I couldn't have asked for something better. 
I might, I think I need to see a picture that we can post for our users of these ski poles. And then the second thing I was going to say is I might be able to help you with your problem because I know that we might have some Scott World Cup schools sitting up in my warehouse right now. Well, at this point, I mean, I'm, I'm all in chap because I, <laughs> I would love to be able to kind of keep that, uh, keep that ball rolling with those, those uh, Scott World Cup polls. They were the thing back in the, I don't want to age myself, but a long, <laughs> long time ago, they were the thing. And uh, I still use them today. And they're really designed, you know, they have the little plastic basket. They're not really designed for, you know, off piste or whatever, uh, but that, I use them anyway. I don't, I've never used any other pole. I just, uh, I love them. That's awesome. It was, it was many, 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 many decades ago. Right, Mark? That's when, that's when the, that started. Was many late seventies, mid to late seventies. Yeah. Uh, I'm just so teasing you. Uh, no, what, what a great, uh, what a great deal. Awesome. Yeah. That, I, I remember those those ski poles as well. I, I also, um, you know, the, the nice thing was as as all of us kids got got new gear and kind of, you know, had different had different helmets and different, you know, jackets and different pants. You know, the one thing that I, I was always 100 percent sure about was that my dad was going to be wearing the same. I think you've got a new jacket now, but you had a a black and blue jacket and a, and a black helmet, a black kind of matte helmet that was very round. And, and I remember we could always spot you from a mile away because we, we could see that helmet and, and we could see the, that blue jacket. And, and we never, we would never lose, we would never lose sight of you on the, on the slopes because you were wearing the same thing every single year after year after year. And uh, even though, even though we were growing and, and kind of our, our ski outfits were changing over time, uh, I remember particularly there was a there was a kids a kids helmet that we had that was kind of blue and splotchy and it looked exactly like a kokanee beer can is what uh, is is what what we we kept up we always called it the kokanee helmet even though none of us knew what that meant um, but all of us went through a phase of of wearing this this blue helmet that you know you could spot from ten miles away. That's awesome. And I I think that's a really cool point about how distinctive and memorable gear can be, especially in the ski situation, because I have so many of the same experiences with friends of mine for years. You just can pick them out because you know their helmet. It stands out so much. You know what jacket they wear, you know, whatever. It's all really sentimental. And it always shakes you up when somebody gets a new coat. Um, Mark, Chris, this has been so freaking fun. I haven't laughed so hard in a long time. Well, Thank, thanks for having me. I, uh, and good luck with the uh, rerouted. I'm very excited about what you guys are working on. Usually, usually Mark, this would be where we give our guests an opportunity to plug their social media accounts. However, I feel <laughs> like we're going to date you there on that one too. Um, but we, we really appreciate it. And Mark is a mentor and advisor here at Rerouted. He's around in the building, kind of working with us in a lot of different ways. A lot of the ideas you guys are seeing are ideas that he's helping us generate. So you guys are seeing his work every day and what we're doing here at Rerouted. Um, And then Chris, you have anything you want to say before Brian and I kick you out of here? No, just wanted to say thanks for having me. Uh, Working at Rerouted is always a ton of fun, but this beats the traditional work schedule for sure. So 
happy to take a quick break here and hop in and just, yeah, excited about everything going on. And thank you, Mark, for jumping in. It's always, always a blast listening to his stories. Like Chap was saying, whenever Mark's around, you're, you're busting your gut laughing because he's a, he's a great guy, great storyteller. So really excited to have you on and uh, thanks for having me as well. Mark, we, Mark and Chris, we, we really appreciate the time. We're, uh, we'll wrap it up there. That has been Repot It, the Rerouted Podcast. Feel free to follow us on, on social media and check out our website, rerouted.co. And that has been Repot It. <laughs>